from John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I go to prepare a place for you. From Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, Solomon talks of God and God's dealings with man, and he writes, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. God has put in the heart of man a sense of the eternal, a longing for a place called home, a knowledge that there is something beyond this world. Father, I pray that you would illuminate our souls by the power of your spirit. May your word be a spotlight that speaks to the fact that not only did you create all of these things and set all things in motion, but that you are leading us to a place that we cannot fully imagine or appreciate yet, but you are the architect of heaven. Open our understanding, I pray, in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Over the last five weeks, we've been talking about God, the architect. First of all, we said that he is the creator of the world. And then we moved on the next week, and we said he's the designer of humanity. He, he made us, specifically. At the center of it all, we said he is also the author or the architect of salvation, and then moving beyond that, he also is the architect of the church, which is that body within which we move and live and have our being in Christ. And finally, he's the maker of our forever. We have to talk about God, the architect, not only of our tomorrow, but of a very real place called heaven. Jesus was just hours from his arrest. The 14th chapter of John, if just as an aside, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have a fairly, a fairly broad arc and travel log as they take you from the earliest days of Jesus and his, his birth in Luke, of course, and, and in Matthew, but they take you from the nativity and then into the ministry of Jesus, but there's this arc of time that kind of flows and it's, it's, it's rather full and takes you in, in somewhat of a sense of balance. But when you hit the book of John, you have to understand that you are reading, you are reading a different gospel and a completely different perspective. Because by the time you get to the 13th chapter of John, you are in the upper room for the Last Supper. And from the 13th of John all the way to that 21st chapter, you are, you're dealing with with those last few hours and last few days. So the balance of John, once you hit the middle of the book, the balance of John starts right there in the upper room at the Last Supper, and that's where we go for, the te for our text this morning. While Jesus had them gathered around the table, he did a lot of business. 
He did a lot of, he had a lot of things to say. If you would take that 14th chapter, 13th, 14th chapter, 15th chapter, and just read through and look at what Jesus said, you would begin to view what Jesus did in his last hours along the same lines as the Sermon on the Mount. As a matter of fact, you've got the time, read the Sermon on the Mount, and then read the balance of John that deals with Jesus at the table with his disciples, and you will have embraced a massive, a massive portion of the gospel. While Jesus had them there at the table and their worlds were beginning to shake apart, he took them far beyond the terrible days that lay just ahead of them, even beyond their own lifetimes. He took a little bit of heaven and he gave it to them in the form of a promise, a promise for the ages, the promise of heaven. What in the world's going on, Jesus? Well, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come again and I'm going to take you there. That's comforting, isn't it? I go to prepare a place for you. What makes promise reality? What makes a promise sure? I wonder, is there one or two who, like me, have had someone break a promise to them before? Is there, oh look, far more than I thought. (laughs) Is there anyone in the room who has never experienced the broken promise? We all know about broken promises. We all know about the wreckage of the broken promise and the damaged integrity and the lost trust. We we know that when a promise has been broken, often a relationship is completely changed. It, It is never quite the same again. It takes the grace of God to bring about restoration where there are broken promises. So what is it that makes a promise reality? What is it that makes a a promise so sure? you stop and think about it for a moment, it comes down to the integrity and the character of the promise maker. It's the integrity and the character of the promise maker. When we have a promise and we have a basis for trust in the one who makes the promise, that promise, that thing is going to be done. We have confidence in that. When I rent a car, often I rent from Hertz. I've never had a problem with Hertz. Always worked well for me. I have a reservation for a rental car in Denver tonight. That reservation is nothing more than a promise. But I got to tell you, my trust is running pretty high. I rate my chance of that vehicle being there at about 99.5%. I can't imagine. I can't imagine that I'll arrive and that it won't be ready for me. Why? Because... They've proved themselves to be trustworthy every time I've gone. Even if, it's been the, even if they haven't had the vehicle that, that was supposed to be there for me, what do they do? They upgrade me. I like that. I like that. They say, somewhere here we're going to find you something, and almost always it's, it's a big upgrade. I like that. Promise holds power. A promise is almost material. If there's integrity and trust in the promise giver. It's not ethereal, it's material. I gave my wife a ring when we were engaged and then another one to go with it on the occasion of our marriage. She still wears those rings. 
wears them all the time. I, I don't know that, I, I know she's had them off before to have them cleaned or sometimes the setting needed a little bit of work, but she has those on all the time and she just has this thing, if I take mine off, it bothers her. I don't understand that. Some of you can send me some mail, maybe. But I know this about her ring. It's not a memorial stone she's carrying around. It's this diamond. It's not so much meant to recall the youthful days of our courtship. I don't know about you. We're still trying to forget a few of those. It's not about that August day when we stood together before a preacher and said that we do. Now that diamond, that diamond is a promise. That diamond is a promise of love until life on earth is through. See, diamond is the most enduring mineral on earth. Steel is rust and granite is dust. Just takes time. But that diamond, it glitters with the promise of forever. Sherry and I are a little bit worn. But that diamond, that diamond glitters like the first day I saw it in its setting. In the Gospels, Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is the bride, and the promise of Jesus to the bride is a forever promise. It's not just Jesus coming into your life to straighten out all of your mess today. When Jesus steps into your life, he redeems your whole future. When Jesus steps into your life, there's this great big door that opens up, and what's behind it? Paradise. When Jesus comes into your life, you no longer are a citizen of this world. You're a citizen of the world to come. Everything changes. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. As the cross drew near, Jesus wanted his disciples to know there's a place. There's a place. I'm going to prepare a place. I certainly have no idea as to how God constructs this heaven or how uh, exactly what it is made of because everything in the spiritual realm when it's described in, in the physical world, is described in the terms of metaphors as close as we can possibly get to it. So we talk about gold and we talk about this precious stones and, and all of this type of thing, but we're talking about all of those things. Which did, did, they belong to the earthly realm that will be, the Bible says, ultimately dissolved. And so when the scripture speaks in any of these terms, it's speaking metaphorically about what he's built heaven out of Heaven is often, in the teaching of, of Jesus, described in some pretty rich metaphors. But all metaphors fail at some times. They always fall short of what they're trying to describe. For me, it's good enough that Jesus says, Hey, David, I have a place for you. I have a place for you. If it's a mansion, it's a mansion. If it's a room, it's a room. If it's, I know this. He has a place for me. And my father is no slumlord. He has a place for you. 
In the brevity of his words, Jesus gives answer to one of the deepest longings of the human heart, a place. How many people do you know who are still trying to find their place in this world? That's the problem. They're trying to find their place in this world. Always trying to find where do we fit, where do we belong. And the ultimate belonging, when Jesus created us, he created us for his glory. He created us to walk with us forever. We look at life through this narrow little alley, our 70 or 80 or 90 years, a place for you. That's what we long for. That's what we, we have a sense inside of us that there's something more. Augustine in his confessions said it so well. I don't know that anybody's ever said it as well. He said, you, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Now there is a rest that is found when Jesus takes up the throne of our heart. There's a rest that we achieve in this life, trusting in the Lord as we look to the future, but there's more to come. I think Fanny Crosby, author of more than 300 hymns, captured it so well in her hymn, In the Cross. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever till my ransom soul shall find rest beyond the river. The metaphor is the river. Metaphor beyond the river. What does it mean when I step from this life into the next? There is a place for me. A place for me. Well, that terrible night in Jerusalem, the disciples were men desperately in need of a promise. Because they were living in the eye of a hurricane. Everything in their world was coming apart at the seams. All of their hopes were threatened to be torn to pieces by plots of violence and Roman intrigue and the Jewish authorities who were hell-bent on destroying Jesus. Everything was coming apart at the seams. Their Savior was talking about things that they didn't really understand. He spoke very plainly, but at times, and we scratch our heads saying, how come these guys didn't get it? It was hidden to them. They were so looking at life through one prism that they couldn't really see the broader scope of things. And I fear that we are afflicted by that same myopic vision. We get tunnel vision. We see things only within the context of this life. And we really can't see the broader things. And when we can't see the broader things, hope is extinguished within us. But their Savior was talking of things they didn't understand. And then in the midst of it all, there's this bombshell. Judas, one of their own, is uncovered as a betrayer, as a traitor, and he walks out into the night, and then just as that is settling upon their souls, their troubled souls, in the midst of all of that, Jesus says to Peter, before the night is over, you're going to deny me, you're going to deny me three times. Three times. Jerusalem, for these disciples, was suddenly the most dangerous place on the earth. 
Jesus is talking about dying. You know how unnerving that is? When your concept of Messiah has never been married in any way to the concept of death or the cross. Think about it for a moment. You and I, you and I, because we're looking back from a Christian perspective, we talk about Messiah coming to the earth to give himself a ransom for many. But for the Jew, their idea was Messiah comes to earth and he straightens up this awful mess. They really hadn't extrapolated where it goes from there so much. They were looking for a Messiah to come and put all things to rights. And so for the disciples, a dead Messiah never figured in their dreaming. And it seems as though all hell is breaking loose over them as they're gathered in that upper room. And so Jesus says to them first, he says, hey, let not your heart be troubled. He just kind of goes, settle down. I'm going to tell you a few things. I'm going to tell you a few things. But first, just you need to back it down a little. Let not your heart be troubled. Sometimes we need someone to speak calmly into our hurricane. And most of you know I'm a football fan. The thing I love about Sunday afternoon is NFL football. I don't know if that makes me less spiritual in your eyes. But uh, so be it. Um, if it helps you, well, never mind. I'm going to leave that alone because I. Anyways, I am. I'm a. I'm an NFL fan, but I've always pulled, and I still do. I forgive me, some of you. This will be offensive to you, but I've always pulled for teams that have a little bit of mud and snow in their cleats. These people who lived in crushed velvet palaces and, um, you know, the, the covered team, you know, covered dome teams, and all of that. Sorry, I, I love you as people, but you really need to discover the game of football the way it's supposed to be played. It's just a thought. I'm just throwing that out this morning. I, was, I just don't even know what came over me. But anyways, in, in 2014, I'm, I mean, I'm talking about, I'm talking about teams, and this, you're going to laugh at me now because I am a longtime fan of the Chicago Bears. Soldier Field and the Bears. I know. It's okay. I know their record. I know their record. I also know the truth, and the truth will make you free. <laughs> anyways, I, you know, I know, I, I know it's been since 1985, but anyways, um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I've always been a, a Bears fan, even, even when they've been terrible. They usually are. Um, I'm, I, know, I know it's unpopular with a lot of people, but I, I like the Patriots. I like the fact that they play in Foxborough, not far from where I grew up, up in Eastern, up in Eastern Canada. And they got to play in all those weather conditions. And when the snow is flying and they've got to shovel out the lines just to know where the goal line is, that's football. I really, I really, I really like that. I really like that. I always pray that they're, that never, I'm just, I'm, no, I gotta leave it alone. There's so much I wanna tell you. And I like the, I like the Packers. I like Lambo and the Packers and Cheeseheads and, the, uh, and that's, I'm, I'm good. that's great for me. In 2014, Green Bay stumbled out of the gate. They had a great team. They had massive expectations. They were, they were gonna be world beaters. And in the first three games, they were one and two. And Packerland went crazy. It's like all of the pent-up frustrations just, it was everywhere on the media and there was all kinds of sniping going on and, and the Packers were, you know, the, the, what was wrong with the Packers and everybody was already doing a post-mortem on the third week of the season. They were, they were going down in flames and, 
And their only victory had been a miracle come from behind win over the woeful, consistently woeful New York Jets. And the Cheeseheads just panicked. Their quarter, the quarterback of, of Green Bay, Aaron Rodgers, turned the whole season around with a single word on his weekly radio show. He said, commentator was asking him questions, and he said, five, five letters here just for everybody out there in Packerland. Five letters. R-E-L-A-X. Relax. We're going to be okay. The Packers believed Aaron Rodgers. Somebody believed. Because the next week, they marched onto Soldier Field and they crushed my bears 38-14. Killed them. Annihilated them. Rodgers went off that in that single game, 22 of 28 passes, more than 300 yards and four touchdowns. That's a good day for a QB. And after a one and two start on the season, they went to 12 and four and they missed the Super Bowl only, only in overtime at the deciding game. They, they should have gone that year, except for those Seahawks. 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 Just to this day, I can't cheer for them. I just, I can't. I can't. All right. That's called a, that's a selah, that's a pause. We all just took a pause for a moment. <sighs> now trade the locker room for the upper room. The players are all different, but the panic is the same. It's the same old garden variety anxiety you and I know. What in the world is going on? How in the world do we go forward from here? How are we going to get out of Jerusalem before they kill us and put us to death? How, how do we begin to get our arms around some of the crazy things coming out of Jesus' mouth? Can we just get back to Galilee and get everyone settled down? They are in the midst of a full-blown panic, and Jesus does his version of relax. When you read the text, see it. He just says, let not your heart be troubled. I've got something I'm going to share with you that is going to set you at rest in peace. Let not your heart be troubled. Jesus didn't just give that promise to his weary disciples. He gave that promise through John to us. He wanted us to look beyond this temporal realm and see eternity. He wanted us to get a right perspective beyond the common struggles of life. There is a place for us. There's a place for us. I'm talking about heaven. I'm talking about a heavenly home. And somewhere in our spiritual DNA, somewhere in the makeup of mankind, there is something deep down inside that longs for home, that longs for something after this life. There's got to be, there's something within us that draws us. When we're lost in life and wandering around, there's, there's something that's constantly stirred within us to try this or go here or look there or maybe, maybe the answer's over. But we are constantly in this quest to find our way home. Find our way home. Even secular people know this. People with no real appreciation for Jesus, they know it. James Taylor, the great American singer-songwriter, 
one of my favorites, writes a lot about going home. I've loved his, his music since I first heard Carolina in my mind. Had no idea at that point where Carolina was. I have to understand, when I heard it, I heard it 50 years ago. Like as a kid, music was my thing. And so, and as a Pentecostal preacher's kid growing up, you know, any kind of music that wasn't Christian was on the band list. And I listened a lot to the band list. You want your kids to listen to something, just ban it. And I promise you, they'll find a way to listen. My dad found some of my records one day, and I got to tell you, it was a, it was a close encounter with the spiritual realm. You say, who could not, you know, what's the problem with Carolina? It was a different day, okay? But it was 50 years ago. And this blows my mind. Does it really, could it really be, I'm talking about hearing a song for the first 50 years ago? And I see the look on your face, who, because you're looking at me and say, there is no way that you're 50 years old. I, I, and thank you for that. Thank you for that. I, that expression, I felt it. I have a spiritual sense for these things. I felt like you wanted to say it. I just said it for you. But bless you, my children. Thank you. So... Anyways, uh, James Taylor, that's where we were going. James Taylor's written more than 200 great songs. Oh, the songs he has written, they're incredible songs. But a huge number of those songs talk about the road and the journey and trying to find your way home. Traveling Star, Country Road, Highway Song, Mexico, The Walking Man. Taylor, in an interview, said, he said, I've really only written about 25 songs. I just keep writing them over and over again in different ways. And one of the themes that he's never far from, and I'll just, his own words, I'll just quote him. He said, a lot of those, he said, I've got a lot of those can't quite get home kind of songs or highway songs or songs that romanticize the call of the road, the inability to settle down, the inability to find peace. All he's done is captured the echo of heaven. And it's there for anyone who wants to listen. Something inside of us, even something outside of us, that says there has to be more. James knows that there's something in us that is searching and longing and never quite home. I think that secular songsmiths and mystics and poets feel at times God's presence like it is an echo from another world he created. And by the way, I've got enough, I, don't, I didn't want to take all of the time to drag out some of the music quotes, but I've got, some, I've got some phenomenal quotes from some of the greatest composers of all time and greatest musicians who speak about a moment where they feel like they somehow touched the other side. Mozart was the one who simply said, music comes from heaven. It comes from heaven. Somehow, They hear the echo. C.S. Lewis heard the echo. And that echo led him to Jesus from an atheist to an agnostic and from an an agnostic to a theist and from a theist to a believer through Jesus Christ as his savior into eternal life. Lewis had a long and somewhat tortured journey, but this incredible Oxford intellect As he walked and chronicled his journey along the way, he has so much to say. 
Listen to this man of letters. Listen to this man who understands the philosophies of the world. Listen to this guy who is a compendium on earthly, uh, uh, on earthly history and the quest of man for destiny. Listen to what he says. Somewhere deep within each of us is a desire, a longing for a world very different from our own. It is there, first of all, because we have been created in the image of God and were intended to live with him in a world of love. Though his image has been defaced by the fall, there's st- it's still re- uh, uh, there is still remnant of it within us. The stunning beauty of a sunset, the awe of the starry heavens, a deeply moving story or poem can arouse within us a brief moment of awareness and desire for our true home. This is even stronger once we have been born of the Spirit, for God plants eternity in our hearts. Yeah. In one of the most poignant thoughts Lewis ever put to paper, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. His argument from desire And by the way, you look at it and you say, well, that's kind of lightweight. You have to understand that this argument among the inklings, this little club of debaters and agnostics, atheists, and Christians who gathered together in Oxford every week and they would sit around and they would talk about these things, this was one of the compelling arguments that brought Lewis to Christ and also significantly influenced, influenced some of these men who were grappling with the universe from a different framework than you and I have as, as Christians these days. Lewis said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He then goes on to explain the indicative nature of our longings. The indicative nature of our longings. Let me explain it this way. I'll use his words too. He said, a baby feels hunger. Well, that baby feels hunger. There must be such a thing as food. See what he's saying? The hunger and the desire indicates that there's a reality to meet that longing and that hunger. He takes it in another direction. He says, a duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. In other words, that duckling is wired to head for the water. There's water. When the duckling duckling is hatched, the duckling doesn't know a thing in the world. And yet there is this, there's this instinct there's something hardwired there, and there's a desire, or there's, there's an answer to that desire. And if I haven't got your attention yet, I'll use his third explanation. He said, men feel sexual desire. He said, well, there's such a thing as sex. I'll leave that one right there. Now, what of our longing, what of our longing for an eternal home? What of our long, say it, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Hmm. Do you long for home? You see, we're not at home here. And, and if when I say, do you long for home, you're thinking about your address, or you're thinking about another state, or you're thinking about where you were born, you're missing me completely. There's something far deeper than that. There's something calling far deeper than that inside of us. I'm talking about heaven. I'm talking about our eternal home. And in honesty, folks, we have to admit, we are so consumed. We are so overcome. We are so flooded 
with the cares of this life, we don't think of heaven like we should. I grew up in a different age. I'm, I'm, I'm straddling here. I'm, a, I'm a, one of the latest baby boomers in, in that generation to come along. And between that generation and their birth and what's happening right now, it's a vast gulf. Things have, have changed dramatically. I grew up where Sunday night at church, all you did was sing about heaven. Sunday morning, you sang the anthems, but Sunday night, you sang all the gospel songs, and every other one of them was about heaven. Used to sing about heaven, used to talk about heaven. You say, I mean, as a matter of fact, we, got, we, we at one time earned, the opinion of the world was for the church, an earned opinion. They said, you people are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good, right? Nobody says that about us anymore. What a shame. What a shame that we have become so disassociated from this central theological truth. Heaven. See, we're not at home here. Peter says you're sojourners and exiles, but I like the New American Standard take on it. New American Standard um, Bible from the Greek to the English, the translators were very exact. They didn't take hardly any editorial license. And so you get, it's not as smooth a reading translation as some of the others, but it is closest. It's the closest, most scholars agree, it's the closest to the Greek, the language in which the New Testament was written. And instead of sojourners and exiles, the NASB translates it aliens and strangers. Peter said, we are Christians, we are aliens and strangers in this world. Paul knew this well because he writes to the Philippians in the third chapter. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior. So what Jesus said in the upper room, Peter fully grasped and Paul later grasped because Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And Paul says, we're awaiting He's preparing that place, and now we are awaiting that Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we are aliens and strangers here, citizens of heaven. Do you ever think about home? Just hours after Jesus gathered his disciples around that table in the upper room, he stood before a Roman prefect. It was Pontius Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you a king? Remember what Jesus said? My kingdom is not of this world. It wasn't then, it's not now, and it never will be. Hear me. His kingdom, not of this world. Christian, we need to understand this. Heaven will not abide dual citizenship. You cannot go there unless you renounce your earthly citizenship, your sinful citizenship. You cannot go there unless you have been adopted into this new family. You cannot. All roads do not lead to God. Most roads will lead straight to hell. That's the truth. Jesus said, it's the straight road, it's the narrow gate. 
We, we just cast all of that aside and say, no, all, leads, all roads must lead to God because we just can't believe that anyone could go to hell. Well, the fact of the matter is a whole bunch of people are going to hell and we should care about that. We should care about that so much that we tell everybody that we know about Jesus. You say, well, I just don't, I don't feel like it's our place. Well, whose place is it? You know, I don't want to get in people's face and I, I just feel like, you know, everybody need, we need to respect their space. Really? If you believe that all roads lead to God, then there was no reason whatsoever for Jesus to go to the cross. That becomes the farce. That becomes the farce of the church. That Jesus died for our sins when he didn't really need to because all roads will get you there. You with me this morning? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You have got to be a citizen of heaven for you to anticipate ever enjoying that place. And if you have not renounced your citizenship here, if you're still living like the world, expecting to go to heaven, you're missing something really important. There is no dual citizenship. We hold too fast to this life. And we are overwhelmed by it. But if you stop and think about it, most of us carry around those, those smartphones. And on those smartphones, we can access all of the news services that never stop telling us about heaven. No. Everything on Fox, everything on CNN, everything on MSNBC, everything you get from Drudge, everything that comes from the Daily Beast, every bit of it, 100% of it is focused on one thing, this life now. And what do Christians do? We got people who do not read, Christians, people who claim to be Christians in churches who do not read 10 pages out of their Bible in a month. But every morning, the first thing they do is tune into Fox or the first thing they do is tune into CNN. The first thing they do is go to whatever their news services so they can just get caught up on the affairs of this world, which the Bible says is passing away. We've got it absolutely upside down and backwards. Malcolm Muggeridge said, the only ultimate disaster that can befall us, I have come to realize, is to feel ourselves to be at home here on earth. See, as long as we're aliens, we cannot forget our true homeland, which is the kingdom of God. Disaster, he said, when Christians feel at home on the earth. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Well, the disciples at this point in time had very little time to embrace the concept. They were in an upper room in Jerusalem and the night was getting long and they were shocked and they were shaken. Not one of the disciples had really seen before the, with clarity the horror that was about to befall their master. Their hearts were troubled, deeply troubled. They couldn't put it all together. If Jesus was Messiah, the one announced by the prophets, the king, then where and how could his kingdom be established in the earth if he's going to die? The Jews weren't celebrating him. They were plotting his death. They were working to crucify him. The Romans didn't care one way or the other. He was a political pawn. He was a gnat. He was a speed bump to the Romans. They couldn't have cared one way or the other. Set him free or, or hang. It didn't matter to them. It was all about political intrigue. 
Some scholars, and I think wrongly, but some scholars argue that Judas was so disillusioned with Jesus and his hesitation to seize power that he tried to push the issue by betraying Jesus. Their idea is this, that Judas said, well, he's the miracle worker. He can do anything. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put him in a situation where he has to. I'm going to call him out. I'm going to go and I'm going to betray him and I'm going to give them over and they're going to come in and they're going to take him, they're going to take him captive and then he just needs to speak the word or he needs to do what he does. He needs to, ex- he needs to exercise his miraculous power and then his kingdom will come. I don't think that, I really don't think that that was the case at all. I don't think that the Bible supports it. But this whole idea, this whole mindset completely wrapped up in this earthly realm, this earthly kingdom was a problem that the disciples did grapple with. Because James and John, James and John said, remember us when you come into your kingdom. They were clearly thinking about an earthly kingdom. And what did they want? Well, one wanted secretary of state and the other wanted chief of staff. Want to sit on your right hand and want to sit on your left hand. And, and it was their mommy who tried to get the job for them. That's the millennial, isn't it? I'm sorry, I'll get mail this week for that one, but it's... You know, had a helicopter parent out there who was just, you know, hovering over the top saying, now, Jesus, you couldn't do any better than my boys. Give them a job. When, they, when you set up your kingdom here in the earth, they were completely wrong. They didn't understand. That earthly kingdom that they were looking for is now slipping as they're sitting at Jesus' feet in that upper room. That earthly kingdom is slipping from their grasp. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't worry about these things. By the next morning, Judas would be dead. Peter will have run away. And nobody will be looking for an earthly kingdom. By the next morning. That meant they weren't going to live in fine houses in Jerusalem, maybe collecting taxes or advising the elders or carrying out the plans of the new administration. That, that one crashed and burned. They wouldn't witness the retreat of Rome, the emptying out of the Anatonia fortress. They, they weren't going to see that happen. It wasn't going to happen. That, that dream went crashing down. They were soon to see themselves as men without a country. And they found themselves scattered throughout the earth, four corners of the earth. Their deaths, by the way, the disciples' deaths would be recorded all over the planet, and most of them violent, and all of them alone. They didn't die in pairs or trios supporting one another's story. They were all alone with the gospel, preaching in places no one had preached before. We know that Peter died being crucified upside down on a cross just outside of Rome. We know that Andrew died in the southern reaches of Russia Philip, like him in North Africa, and Thomas in India, and Matthew in Ethiopia, Bartholomew in Arabia. We know that it was Simon in Persia, deep in Persia, and and Matthias in Syria. Only James, and very early in the gospel, very early in the book of Acts, only James, only James dies in Jerusalem. Stop and think about it for a moment. If, If they were not eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, would they have maintained the lie for 20 and 30 years and be martyred for it alone among strangers? Think about that for a moment. If they were not eyewitnesses of his resurrection, would they protect, would people die for a lie? 
Would you? Matter of fact, that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Somebody puts enough pressure on, sooner or later you're going to come to grips with the truth or you're going to tell the truth. They're going to sweat you until they get the truth out of you. These disciples, all of them, went to the four corners of the earth. They went there totally alone. They went there completely unsupported. In many cases, they died alone in those places, and they stood by their testimony because it was the truth. They had laid eyes on the risen Christ. They'd seen him risen from the dead. They were eyewitnesses to his glory and the recipients of a great commission and And they had a promise. I go to prepare a place for you. They had a promise. The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 14 reminds them, even as he reminds us today, here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. It's a warning to all who confuse God's kingdom with any political system. Any political system. Whether that be a fraudulent socialist utopia or a fraudulent sanctified democracy. Any political system in this world cannot produce the righteousness of God, will not produce the righteousness of God, and is not the end to which God's plan flows. The late Malcolm Muggeridge, who spent his life, his early, well, not his early life, even into his late life. Muggeridge died, I believe he was near, near the age of 90, and he'd been a Christian for about seven, the last 17 of those years before that. He was a world-celebrated journalist, He was on the cutting edge of a lot of huge stories and spent 10 years in Russia as the Soviet empire began to rise up. He was there, uh, he was there in the, in the years of Stalin as a, um, I believe he's a reporter at that point for the Guardian. But Muggeridge wrote all of his life amidst these clashing great political forces uh, at work in the world and all of these promising philosophies that said they were going to change everything. Muggeridge held a front row seat to witness the rise and the fall of of Soviet power and the decline, the steady decline of his own British empire and the emergence of the American superpower and the politicization of, of his own church, of his state church, the Church of England. And he wrote about that often and then later also wrote about the politicization of evangelicalism in the world. Muggeridge wrote with prophetic power. He said... Our Western civilization, like all others before it, must sometime or another decompose and disappear. The world's way of responding is to engage equally in idiot hopes and idiot despair. On one hand, some new policy or discovery is confidently expected to put everything to rights. A new fuel, a new drug, detente, world government, a common market, North Sea oil, revolution, counter-revolution. On the other hand, Some disaster is confidently expected to prove our undoing. Capitalism will break down. Communism will take over or vice versa. Fuel will run out. Atomic waste will kill us off. Plutonium will lay us low. Overpopulation will suffocate us. In Christian terms, such hopes and fears are equally beside the point. 
As Christians, we know that we have here no continuing city, (laughs) that crowns roll in the dust, and that every kingdom must sometimes founder. As Christians, too, we acknowledge a king men did not crown and cannot destroy, just as we are citizens of a city men did not build and cannot destroy. Brothers and sisters, we are part of the kingdom of God. It transcends anything and everything that is going on in this world. And if we are more focused on the things of this world than we are on the kingdom that is come and is coming, we will walk out of step with the Spirit of God and be sucked into the vortex of distraction that surrounds us in this age. In the day which should be the church's finest, we will stumble and we will fail miserably. We need to somehow capture this and understand that we are citizens of heaven. See, the men and women who turned the world upside down did not make revolution their chief end. I'll say it again. The men and women who truly turned the world upside down did not make revolution their chief end. They made the preaching of Jesus their chief end. They had a promise. There's a place for you. There's a place for you prepared by the architect of heaven, and they preached Jesus. We might argue, and I have argued in times past, I've repented before the Lord for it, for that little saying, if you, maybe you've said it yourself or you've heard it, those people are just too heavenly minded to be worldly good, any worldly good. Anyone ever said it, or don't, you don't put your hand up, but, or you've heard it, oh, too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. You know, I've, I have to say, I've, I've, those words have escaped. They've escaped my lips, and I have absolutely repented before God for saying it. Too heavenly minded to be earthly good. Oh, by the way, nobody says that about the church anymore, and that to our eternal shame. When people talk about the church, they don't talk about the church. They say, oh, those people, man, all they're ever talking about is heaven. They really don't talk about those things. Because we don't. We are so consumed with this present age and with ourselves. We've lost our vision of heaven. The men and women who turned the world upside down, that wasn't what they were about. They were preaching Jesus and the byproduct was they turned the world upside down. But turning the world upside down wasn't what the preaching of Jesus was all about. It was about getting people ready for heaven. It's different altogether. So we argue that we don't need men and women with their head in the clouds. I would argue today that, yeah, in this age, we do. We do. I want to close with... um, Another quote from C.S. Lewis. Forgive me for all of the quotes. I think I've just buried you in quotes this morning, but when someone says it better than you know you ever can. I was reading in Lewis. He said, if you read history, please understand that Lewis was a master of philosophy and a master of, of world history. If anyone understood the way we became, what we have became, If anyone had a grasp on it, C.S. Lewis. He was brilliant in these things. 
He said, if you'll read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most about the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages. The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on the earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. They were thinking of that day that they would stand before God in heaven. He said, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Don't miss this. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. You aim at earth, you get neither. The cry of my heart is to see a church rise up that is not simply a puppet manipulated by the culture, but rather a people who are following their king. The longing of my heart is to be people who are not absorbed in things that will not last and do not matter, but rather the testimony of Jesus lives in their heart because they know there is a day coming where he will open the doors to us. He'll come back and receive us unto him, and we want everyone to go be with him. We need to be a people who understand that outside of Jesus Christ, there is no way by which man can know God as creator. None whatsoever. The Bible has no truck. It has no place. It has no verse of scripture, however obscure, that would tell you that there is any other way except through Jesus Christ that we can know God. I long to see a church rise up with that passion in their hearts. God help us. Because the things of earth have become bright and shiny. And the things eternal have faded from our view.